0: Good afternoon, welcome, I'm Dr. Jill Brooks, Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. First Healthcare Compliance is helping healthcare providers and billing services around the country reduce compliance risks by using our cloud-based comprehensive compliance solution. Each month we provide a free monthly webinar bringing different experts in the field to discuss topics relative to healthcare practices. Today, we are so pleased to have Lori DeJardin joining us from Coding Strategies, one of our channel partners. Coding Strategies provides exceptional consulting and educational services designed to improve compliance and ensure appropriate reimbursement for the financial health of your business. Lori DeJardin is the Director of Consulting. She specializes in physician coding, education, outpatient coding, and reimbursement issues. Lori?
1: Thank you, Dr. Brooks, and good afternoon, everyone, Um, or morning from the West Coast, I should say. Um, We're going to talk today about medical decision-making and how that links to medical necessity. We're going to talk about this from a documentation and coding perspective. Obviously, I am not a physician, I don't even play one on a webinar, but I am going to talk about coding concerns, documentation concerns, and the whole goal of this presentation is really to make the most subjective portion of your documentation, much more um, clear-cut, much more objective and hopefully intuitive so that physicians and coders can take the salient information that's required from a coding perspective, document that, know the criterion, what meets the level and then move on and see the next patient and continue to provide good care. So that's the goal of today's presentation, we're hoping that we can do that. From an agenda perspective, we're going to talk about understanding documentation from a coding perspective. Again, not clinical in this case. We are talking about documentation and reimbursement from a from a coding perspective. We're going to talk about medical necessity and what that means from a documentation coding perspective. Then we're going to talk about um, your visit note and how to assign code based on your documentation and we'd call that the bottom up approach because really what drives the acuity of the patient's visit what drives why the patients are seeing you and more and more what's driving reimbursement is your assessment and plan and how that links to medical necessity so i call it coding from the bottom up and then we're going to take the last few minutes of the presentation and 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 briefly talk about how we can apply these principles in everyday uh, documentation so that you can, as I said, uh, document the services that you're providing to your patient and move on to the next patient without having to worry about um, level of code that you've selected and feeling comfortable with that. So, Having said that, let's talk about understanding documentation from a coding perspective. The AMA, um, most of you are looking, are using an EMR or EHR depending on whether it's interoperable or not. Uh, for those of you who aren't, you're probably considering it or we're certainly being incentivized from a reimbursement perspective from the government to adopt EHRs. So. Um, Just briefly, and the AMA said this quite well, EHRs are not the panacea you've been sold. Uh, If you're using one, you certainly uh, know that. If you aren't using one currently, just be careful with the sales um, approach that you're receiving. EHRs are a tool. Um, If you use them appropriately, they can be a good tool to help capture some of the data that may be problematic, maybe time-consuming, but they are not uh, one-click medicine. Um, They need to be used carefully, they need to be used uh, appropriately, and that's what um, has brought the medical necessity issue up. So the AMA talks about, and I would recommend that you go out and take a look at the article, but they really do talk about um, some of the... expected consequences of um, the way some EHRs have been set up, and it really is uh, bringing into question the medical necessity of of patient encounters. So, Most of you are familiar, certainly have heard about the SOAP note, it's the Subjective-Objective Assessment Plan. It's comfortable to physicians, it really does follow um, some logic as to how you gather information and make decisions with regards to patient treatment. What I want to do today is really talk about um, documentation from a SOAP note format. I'm going to try and take some of the coding uh, terminology out of this presentation and really talk about level of care. And When I talk about level of care, I'll be talking about levels of um, coding with regards to uh, the documentation that you're providing, but I'm going to try and keep away from um, Using terms like detailed history and detailed exam, I really am going to talk about a level four history or a level four exam and when I say level four, uh, I will distinguish between whether that's a new patient 99204 versus an established patient 99214, but when I say level four, it's the last digit of a particular code class. So there are three key components in um, in a subjective note, in excuse me, in a SOAP note. um, They equate to history, examination, and medical decision making. So the history, exam, and medical decision making are really coding formats. They are not documentation formats from a SOAP perspective. So what I want to try and do is, is mirror those and match them up. So, if we take a look at your SOAP note, this objective obviously equates to history. History equates to the three things that we need from a coding perspective, which are history of present illness, review of systems, and past family social history. The objective portion is the exam, it's kind of self-explanatory, and then we get to the area that is a little more convoluted from a coding perspective, but your assessment and plan. Uh, basically equates to your medical decision making. Medical decision making is again broken into three parts. We have the diagnosis and management options, which generally equate to your assessment. What diagnoses are you are you assessing or treating? what's the acuity of those diagnoses? And then the risk is the plan or the risk of mortality of the patient related to those number of diagnosis and management options. And the other area that we use from a coding perspective that really can be found throughout the soap note is the data element. And data elements can be in the subjective portion. there if it's not, Uh, documented in subjective, um, then sometimes data can be found in documentation between the objective and the assessment. So, for example, the determination to obtain additional records may be found somewhere between the objective and assessment in your records. The subjective portion of data will be reviewing test results with the patient, discussing that in the history of present illness. It may be uh, getting additional history from family members, that's all part of what you might document in the subjective portion of your note. Other elements of data that might be found in the subjective would be um, reviewing notes from other consultants or other physicians to get the flavor of what's going on with that patient. So that's all part of the data assessment. Uh, physicians do that quite well. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it isn't documented clearly, so we can't give credit for it, and I'm going to spend some time talking about that as well. I think, especially in today's environment, practitioners have a lot of data in front of them. How well you document where you're getting your information plays a big role on whether or not we can give you, from a coding perspective, credit for that data assessment. So, we're going to talk about some nuances related to that as well. But that's where we're – this is the perspective I'm trying to take here as we discuss. We're going to talk about the soap note and how it translates into into coding So what it's the deal with medical necessity you know payers love to bandy this word about and everybody has a different um, basic everybody has a every payer has a different, um, explanation of what they consider medical necessity. I'm going to go through what Medicare considers medical necessity, each payer is slightly different. At the bottom line, it's providing good quality to your patients at the least expense from a payer perspective. Okay. Um, as a physician, medical necessity may mean something totally different. From a coding perspective, we have to meld both of those worlds, so from a coding perspective, we have to take the very subjective um, determination that payers have and physicians have, and try and make that um, somehow um, definitive. And so, it's difficult to do since most coders, um, most auditors are not clinical. And it's difficult for physicians to understand if we're using very definitive terms on how to determine medical necessity, how that translates into the documentation of um, your objectives, your, your, your SOAP note. So, we're going to talk about how that's done and I'm going to have some suggestions on how we can make it less objective, more objective and uh, something that is repeatable that you can use moving forward and um, hopefully take some of the angst out of this whole coding folder all that you're subject to. So, let's talk about medical necessity and the link to medical decision making. And I call it the art of thinking on paper, the better you are at documenting your thought process in your soap note, in your medical documentation, the clearer your medical necessity is going to be supported. So, a prime example is, I frequently look at primary care notes and one of the things I will see in pediatrics is, I'll see a child who has a cold and they may have sniffles, it doesn't appear to be anything, you know, um, in the assessment the physician will, will say URI and very little else that describes what's going on, but when I take a look at the rest of the note, when I look at the subjective portion of the note, physician is talking about um, whether or not there's been fevers, if there's been respiratory distress. If I look at the patient's um, medical history, I see that they have asthma, In the objective portion of the exam, I'm taking a look and I'm seeing that there's a quite comprehensive respiratory exam. you know, whatever is clinically appropriate. At the end of the day, however, in the assessment, physician says upper respiratory infection and, preso- and prescribes an inhaler and there isn't a linkage there between having an upper respiratory infection and prescribing an inhaler. So if the practitioner had brought in the thought process that's quite clear to them but not necessarily clear to an auditor or certainly to an insurance company that this patient also has asthma They aren't telling the complete story. They haven't documented their thought process in paper and it really does not do them a service and it doesn't show the acuity of their medical decision making. So automatically putting somebody on a rescue inhaler is not necessarily supporting the medical necessity for a higher level of service that may be warranted. The fact that you have to bring in the linkage that this isn't your normal five-year-old with a cold, they're a five-year-old who has asthma. And that's a consideration and that's causing, um, there's more medical necessity or the medical decision-making supports a higher acuity and therefore we can support a higher level of code. A cold, 9 times out of 10 from a medical decision-making process on an established patient equates to a 99213. A cold with systemic involvement, such as a history of asthma, so we're concerned about that poorly controlled diabetes, um, patients who have fever, all of those things that are documented if you bring those into your assessment and plan and they are clinically relevant and that goes without saying, all of this has to be clinically relevant, but if it's clinically relevant. then. By documenting those things, you are supporting a higher acuity. There's higher risk to the patient. It's more difficult to manage those patients. And the acuity goes from a 99213 from a medical decision making perspective to a 99214 if we have some chronic conditions that are affecting the treatment. And I'm going to walk you through how that works and how that links to medical necessity. So the medical record must demonstrate the intensity and frequency of services that were met but didn't exceed the patient's clinical needs. So if you have an electronic health record or if you have a template, you know that it's relatively easy to check off boxes and document exam so that you can support a detailed or comprehensive history, so a level 4 or a level 5 history or a level 4 or a level 5 exam on every patient you see. isn't telling the complete story there is, is it medically necessary to have documented all of that? Is there an acuity there that supports checking off those boxes? Again, as a non clinician, I can't tell you that it was clinically inappropriate to do a comprehensive history on a patient who's coming in with a stub toe. What I can tell you that. If you don't support why you did a comprehensive history or a comprehensive exam, that level 4 or level 5 examination on the patient with a quote-unquote stub toe, if you're not documenting why you had to do that in your assessment and plan, then you're not supporting the medical necessity for those services. So again, that assessment and plan drives the medical necessity and medical necessity If you read the second bullet here is the patient's uh, presenting condition is the key factor in determining medical necessity. So how well you document that thought process at the end of the day in the assessment and plan is really what's going to drive the medical necessity for this visit and ultimately for those established patient visits, the whole level of medical decision making or the level of service that you um, can support in your documentation. So from a Medicare perspective, Medicare is advised that the overarching criteria for code selection should be medical necessity. I've given you the reference and where that's found. Okay, They have not changed. Here's the interesting part. Medicare has not changed the go- documentation guidelines. We still have the 1995 and 1997 guidelines. Yes, they're outdated. Do we plan on seeing new guidelines anytime soon? I wouldn't hold your breath. So we're going to use these guidelines for the foreseeable future. Okay, so we have that. At first, Medicare realized when they started looking at records in, in 95 and they changed the doc the EM criteria um, back in the early 90s that physicians overall were, were doing assessment and plan. You, you need that information to create a care plan for the patient. So assessment and plan to a greater or lesser extent was in the medical record. What is generally was lacking in the medical record was the documentation of your history or the documentation of the exam. So when the guidelines came out, it was rather Pavlovian in in, um, the way that they were designed. We really focused on documentation of history, documentation of exam, and then we downplayed medical necessity as a consultant back in the day, really, we focused on how how well a physician documented history and how well they documented exam and kind of downplayed the real reason patients are coming to see you, which is for your medical decision making. So. As we've gotten better at documenting, as you've gone through more and more audits and understand that you have to count in fingers and toes sometimes in order to support uh, a level five history, it requires ten review of systems, for example, four elements of history of present illness and, and three elements of past family social history or a complete past family social history. Templates were created, EHRs are created that allows us to to go through that relatively quickly and on a routine basis to, to fill in all of those boxes. What's happened, however, is we sometimes are filling in those boxes when it really wasn't medically necessary to do it or medically appropriate to do it, but EHRs allow us to document by exception. So In some cases, physicians and practices have been documenting everything as normal unless It's abnormal, without really asking all of those questions. First of all, first and foremost, that's a no-go. That's inappropriate from a coding perspective. If you're checking something off you as normal, you have to have examined it as normal. So easier to do. If you're clinically doing it, you check off those boxes. It's relatively easy to and quick to document a level four or level five history. The same is true for exam. You can check off boxes that say, Yes, I examined it. Rather than having to describe everything, it's pre populated. You can say, This is what I consider a normal respiratory exam. Again, makes documentation a little bit easier. Okay, so we, we have the ability to do that, but if we're not supporting why we needed to do that level of history and exam in our medical decision-making, then this is where this medical necessity criteria comes in, and this is where payers, including Medicare, are paying, putting more and more attention um, on, in audit. So it's the medical necessity criteria that is frequently one that is under scrutiny. So, how do you link medical decision-making to medical necessity? So, what I've said here is basically you need to document your thought process. Document what is going on with that patient, if there are some things that you're concerned about, what they are, how they're affecting the treatment. So, for example, a patient with a cold who has poorly controlled diabetes is a much more complicated patient than the otherwise healthy 18-year-old with a cold. A patient who has pneumonia that's viral in nature and doesn't have fever or it's resolving and they have no comorbidities, that patient's a little less complicated than the patient with fever who has bacterial ideology. So those are the things that you need to document. They, they, they may be intuitive to the practitioner, but they are not intuitive to the person who is reading the note from a coding perspective. The other thing to consider, because as much as all of you think coding is cool and I know everybody went into medical practice to code, I'm being facetious here. The reality is, the next physician who sees this patient and in the transient society that we have now, I for example was in Atlanta last week, I live in Maine, so if I had to have been seen in Atlanta last week because of an acute onset of a condition, I want that treating physician to be able to quickly get a copy of my medical record and take a look at my physician's last note to see what was going on from a medical decision-making perspective – was my diabetes poorly controlled? Was it getting better? Was there any new onset problem that was going on? I don't want that physician to have to interpret test results. I don't want that physician to have to interpret um, lab values. I don't want that physician to have to look at the EKG if they, in one salient Place they can get all of that information in a diagnostic statement. So it goes to a patient care perspective, not only just a coding perspective. Face facts as a clinician, what's the first p- place you look for for information on a new patient you're seeing? Hopefully, it's the assessment and plan because hopefully, your colleague, the person who has seen the patient last, has given you a great narrative that describes what the patient's gone through, what their tests have been, what their signs and symptoms are, and so that you can, at one fell swoop, get an understanding of the acuity of what you're looking at and then go on and make additional decisions for that patient based on the new history that you take, based on the new exam that you're going to do, and then you can relay that information in a salient, easy to understand perspective. So that's the whole idea behind this. If a patient is new to your practice, if you're seeing them in consultation, if you're seeing them as a new patient, if you're admitting them to the hospital, so it's an initial service in the hospital, this really doesn't affect you in that it is not going to affect overall coding because the rules really haven't changed. Medical decision-making, there are three components. If you're seeing a new patient, any of those that I've just described, you have to get it exactly right. History exam, medical decision-making have to meet the level. If they don't, then you drop down to the lowest level that's documented. So for example, if you have a patient that you're admitting to the hospital and you fail to document the complete thought process thought process and you say that this patient has pneumonia, you don't document the fact that they have fever, you don't document that they have an underlying condition, you don't document in your assessment and plan again the fact that they are in acute respiratory distress, it well may be that your documentation only supports a level one admission, low complexity medical decision making. Now we know if we're going to talk amongst ourselves in legitimate terms, there's no way you're getting a patient hospitalized if they only have low-complexity medical decision-making. There is no medical necessity from a hospital perspective, from an inpatient admission perspective to support that. It's not a matter that the patient's acuity doesn't support it, it's a matter that your documentation doesn't support it. So for those patients who have fever, those patients who have a comorbidity, for example, advanced COPD or an acute on chronic exacerbation of COPD that's affecting the pneumonia then obviously that needs to be documented in the patient's medical record to support the higher level of service that you're providing. What I'm talking about here is not those patients, although it can affect how well you document that thought process can affect your level. What I'm talking about here is using medical decision-making to support the medical necessity for your established patients, the patients like the 99213s, the 99212s, the 99214s where only two of the three key components are required. If we use medical decision-making to support medical necessity, What I'm suggesting is that we use medical decision-making as one of those two. So rather than coding a service based on documenting a comprehensive history and a comprehensive exam, what I'm suggesting is that we use medical decision-making and either history and exam to support the level. So for example, if a patient's being seen for follow-up of diabetes, hypertension and hyperlipidemia and the physician is assessing all three of those so there really is an assessment of all three, then that visit supports a level four. So the medical decision-making supports a level four, we then need to determine if your history and exam, one of those two elements also have to support a level four. So if we work from the bottom up, what's your medical decision-making which supports a medical necessity for a level four, then in order to support a level four, what level of history did you document? And 9 times out of 10, if you've got moderate complexity medical decision making, you're doing moderate complexity or level 4 history, the question is, are you documenting it? So the key here is documenting those things that you do so that we can get credit for it and move forward. So the coders mantra, which makes every physician cringe, is if it isn't documented, it it isn't done. And the reality is, from a coding perspective, from a documentation perspective, reality is it's probably done but not documented. And that's one of the things I find frequently in audit. When I look at a physician who is seeing a patient for multiple chronic illnesses and their history doesn't support a level four history, that physician is under-documenting what they've done. Because in order to, to assess a patient with those chronic conditions, if they were legitimately assessed, the physician has to do their subjective has to support that level four. They're not going you're, you're gleaning the information. The problem is frequently, physicians don't document expected responses. So the better you know the patient or the better you know the disease, there's a litany of questions that are asked of the patient. But unless they give you something that you're not expecting, nine times out of ten it does not make it into the documentation. So the history of present illness is that it's that dialogue between the physician and the patient, and that's where stuff gets missed. So I'm going to talk about medical necessity, documenting your questions in the history of present illness and linking that into your assessment and plan is that whole part of the linkage of your medical necessity. So coders perspective, not documented, not done. Auditors perspective, the years I've done this, done but not documented, nine times out of ten. If we are legitimately assessing multiple chronic conditions or the patient's coming in with an acute problem, you have to ask the questions in order to support the, um, your thought process. The payer's mantra is, was it medically necessary? So if your diagnosis is a URI and all that gets documented is the URI with putting the patient on, the prescri- on a prescription, have you adequately supported the medical necessity for a level 4? Should this visit be a level 3, a 99213 versus a 99214? So. How can we make this clear to an insurance company that really was medically appropriate? And let's face facts, there are some times that it is going to be a legitimate level 3 or a level 2. For example, the patient who comes in, they've been poorly controlled, um, a poorly controlled hypertensive patient, they come in, they've started their diet and exercise, they've been taking their medications as prescribed and suddenly, all of your hard work comes to fruition and this patient is stable you've done your job well. If that's the only problem you're assessing today, from a medical decision-making perspective and again, that's what's correlating to medical necessity, this patient's probably going to support only a level 2, a 9921 service today doesn't make sense intuitively, you've done all the hard work before, but it's the end of the day, we now have got this patient stable, the acuity isn't there to support a lot higher level of service unless other conditions are also being assessed. These are some of the examples I'm talking about. So what I want to do is take the game out of this whole documentation piece. I want to take the whole, I can make every patient you see a detailed history and a detailed exam and therefore using just two of the three key components and throwing medical necessity out the door, I can say, every patient you see, we can support from a documentation perspective a 99214. That's not what this is about. What this is about is taking medicine and putting it back in the practitioner's hands. What's the medical necessity for the service? Why do I need to see a physician rather than going to the pharmacy and picking up an over-the-counter med? What are some other factors that are affecting this? okay so the real reason patients want to be seen is not for how well you document your history and it's not for how well you document your exam although those are important what they're really coming to you for is for you to to treat them to make them feel better to get let them understand what's going on with their bodies So, the problem in this whole thing is we have medical necessity, which is a very subjective concept. We have the audit of medical decision-making, which also can be very subjective, and we're going to talk about that, and part of it lies in the table of risk, which is, in some cases, an antiquated table. Okay, so the goal is to correlate medical decision-making to medical necessity from a coding perspective and define the gray areas in medical decision-making such as what I talked about with the risk um, and to make the criterion more objective. We want it to be objective in the practitioner's mind so that they know, I'm seeing this patient, I know when I walk out the door, I've done level 4 medical decision making. The next question is, did I do level 4? subjective on this patient, do it, or did I do a level 4 objective on this patient and can I then support coding a 99214? Okay, so if you intuitively know where your medical decision making is, EHRs will help you dot the I, so to speak, or document some things that you may not have documented because it may have forgotten, whatever the issue is. But again, if it's done, document it, move forward. Um, So that's the goal. So what are we going to do? We know that patients want to be healed, treated, fixed. They want to understand what's going on with them. Not everybody can get fixed. Those Some patients are not going to survive. So those patients are also going to have documentation of time-based services. There's going to be counseling involved. We're going to talk about that as well. So, from an assessment and plan perspective, the medical decision-making, we need to know in your assessment what's the acuity of the problems that you're addressing, what are the risks associated with those conditions, and what's the complexity of the material that you have to go through, all of that data. So all of that information should be easily defined by the treating physician. We can't interpret it. I know that a patient whose lab lab values um, on their A1C is over 10 is not a well-controlled diabetic. I know that. Why do I know that? I've read a lot of medical records, but I'm not clinical. Coders cannot interpret and make clinical judgments for you. I don't care if they're an RN. We are not allowed to do that. You have to make the correlation with the lab values and the patient's diabetes and tell us that they are poorly controlled. If you don't do that, then we have to assume that the patient is stable or well controlled so again things that are counterintuitive to you because you know you see the lab value where the patient's condition is the next physician picking up that patient's chart do you want them to have to take the time to go through and interpret that themselves or do you want them to give want them to have that in- information that's easily accessible they can understand quickly and pick up and carry on with that patient so it's also a care perspective but it's a coding perspective as well The three parts of medical decision-making, we've already talked about that, the number of diagnosis and management options, the data, the risk. What does that mean? You have to, in order to determine the level of service from a coding perspective, we need to know how many problems were addressed. Usually that's the litany of diagnoses that you are um, listing in your assessment. The EHRs haven't done you a service in this. Most electronic health records are requiring you to pick your own diagnosis code. a little problematic because diagnosis codes are not the same language as um, the diagnosis terminology that practitioners usually use. So, it's a little convoluted and uh, using a diagnosis code is actually not giving the clinical interpretation of the patient. So frequently, diagnosis codes, listing a diagnosis code is not enough, you actually have to address other issues that are going on with the patient, give, um, whether, document whether or not the patient's controlled, improving, all of those things. The decision tree related to all of this, we're going to talk about uh, coming up. Um, So we have the number of problems addressed, we have the risks of the problems that the patient has or the risk to the patient, and then the more and more complex information that practitioners have to review. So the thought process in three easy steps, this is the portion that we talked about uh, with regards to the SOAP note. The assessment equates to the number of diagnosis and management options. The risk is basically um, equates to plan. And then as I said, data can be found throughout the note, what you need to know from a from a clinical perspective, from a clinical slash coding perspective is, regardless of where you document data, it all comes into your assessment and plan. Okay? How you document, it, document the data that you're reviewing is going to determine how well we can give you credit for it, so we'll talk about that. So, from an assessment perspective, again, I tried to put these into levels for you so that I'm not trying to make you understand coding terminology. So we have new problems versus established problems. So, if it's a new problem, two questions to ask. If you have enough, the patient being seen it's new to you as the practitioner, not the patient. So, a patient who has diabetes but they're seeing, being seen by an endocrinologist for the first time, that patient's problem is new to the endocrinologist. Okay, patient who presents with asthma for the first time to their primary care physician, that's new to the primary care physician. So, first question, do we have enough? Is this problem new? If the answer is yes, do we have enough to create a care plan for the patient before they leave? So, I know what I'm going to do to treat this patient. I may document that if that doesn't work, I'm going to try something else, but right now I've got a care plan for that patient. Okay, that equates to a level 4. Interesting part under assessment and plan is level 4 is the same for a new patient as it is for an established patient, the criterion is the same. The next question is, is it new that I need additional workup on? So example, patient comes in, the, here's an example of a patient who comes in with back pain. This patient doesn't, ha- doesn't have any ridiculous ridiculopathy, they're not showing any signs of nerve impingement anyplace else, they have back pain. Physician may say, I want you to um, ice it, I want you to take ibuprofen and we're going to send you to physical therapy. If that doesn't work, we'll go for an MRI, okay? But at the end of the day, he's got a care plan for this patient. We've got a treatment. We're going to try physical therapy. We're going to do some stretching. We're going to do whatever. That would be an example of level 4 from an assessment perspective. Let me start with this caveat, if you want to make a note on this, this is one of three elements. I'm not going to tell you that these patients are automatically going to be level fours or fives, but this is one of the three components that determine overall medical decision-making. So from an assessment perspective, that patient with a back pain starts at a level four. Here's the difference between uh, the same condition, different patient. Patient presents with back pain. They have radiculopathy. They've got numbness down their leg. Um, It was an acute onset. They've tried ibuprofen. It's not working. Before you send them to PT, you want to make sure that there isn't nerve impingement going on somewhere. So prior to creating a care plan for this patient, you're going to order an x-ray, a CT, some sort of diagnostic study to determine what the course of treatment should be for this patient given their symptomology. That's an example of an assessment equating to a level 5. Again, only one of the three components of medical decision-making, but one that we need to consider. Then, we go down to an established patient and established patients are classified as whether or not they're stable or controlled. Unstable or poorly controlled or uncontrolled, also add in there not at goal. So you may see a patient who is progressing but they are still not at goal, not where they need to be. That may be um, an unstable problem. Okay, and then we have self limited or minor problems. The reality is, um, given today's conditions and copays and whatnot. Uh, Primary care and certainly specialties are not seeing a lot of self limiter minor problems. Um, so, I'm not going to spend as much time related to those as I will with established versus new. Under the number of problems assessed when it comes to an established problem, think about how many problems you're addressing and whether or not they're stable. So, if you look at the, at the way that this it works, if we put a line here, whoops, if I could draw straight, that would help. So, if we put a line here, this is all our established problems that are controlled. If We have one, it's a level two. If we have two, it's a level three. If we have four, it's a level, excuse me, if we have three, it's a level four. And if we have four or more, then the assessment of that patient could be, it starts at a level five. So, an example of a level five. On a patient who has stable problems, would be the Medicare patient who has six or seven chronic conditions. And if you're addressing those today, at least four of them, then the assessment is starting at a level five. Okay, I'm not tell- telling you that that's where our medical decision making is going to be, but that's where the assessment is going to code from. Then we have the unstable and uncontrolled. Okay, so we have the poorly controlled diabetic. If that patient is documented as a poorly controlled diabetic, when they walk in the door, if that's the only problem you're addressing, then we're starting with an assessment that's a level three. If they have diabetes and hypertension and one of those is poorly controlled, that's a level four or a level five. Then we have the combination patient. Okay, the combination patient is the one that I just described, the poorly controlled diabetic who comes in and their hypertension is actually under control. So it's one stable and one unstable would equate to a level 4. Two stable and one unstable is the level 5. So that's the examples I'm trying to give. And then again, I mentioned the self-limiter minor. Okay, so there's our assessment. I'm going to try and bring this all together at some point, but let's talk about data next. This is the only place in the medical record and what I'm going to talk about that you actually have to do math. I'm going to tell you right now, it's new math because the numbers don't add up. But if you can make this intuitive to what you're doing, it might it might work for you. So under data, we have three different types of data from a coding perspective. Um, we have data in Um, testing that you do, so they are lab tests, that's anything with a blood draw involved would be considered lab tests. From a coding perspective, those are the 80,000 codes. We have imaging services, so that's anything in the radiology section, okay, that's going to be typically non-invasive, contrast may be injected, but all of these are are minimally invasive. So, imaging would be something from the 70,000 series, ultrasound, CT, MRI, flat film, all of those things. and Then we have tests in the medicine section and then the medicine section, those are in the 90,000 series, again, these are minimally invasive services that are used from a diagnostic perspective. Okay, so those are the categories for testing or, or ordering tests. You get one point per category, so the total you can get is one point for labs, whether you order one lab or 21 labs, you get one point for imaging even though you may have reviewed an ultrasound, a CT and an MRI, one point. Same thing in the medicine section. Examples of medicine section tests, EKGs, Um, stress tests, Um, there are some diagnostic GI services that are in this section. Okay, Those would be tests in the medicine section. The next category and, and so the maximum number we can get in if, if we have imaging ser- diagnostic services is one point. If the physician documents that they reviewed the image, whether it be and in this case it's going to be um, radiology or med- medical medical uh, testing. Okay, It's not going to be laboratory results, but if the physician says that they personally reviewed the image, the EKG tracing, the CT um, slides, anything like that, if the physician documents that they personally reviewed it and provide their interpretation of it, and they aren't, there's the key, they aren't the physician who ordered it, then those services you get to count at a higher complexity, so it's worth two points versus one point. And again, it doesn't matter how many of them that you do, you only get two points. Whether or not you review an EKG tracing and look at an MRI, you only get two points total. The decision to pick up the phone and discuss the test results with the interpreting physician are worth a point. The other part is chart review. There isn't a physician who does not pick up a patient's chart if they've been seen by another practitioner. 99% of you are reviewing what that practitioner has to say. If you are, you need to clearly indicate that the information that you are describing was from a review of that practitioner's chart. So, an example would be, chart reviewed from the emergency room, pertinent that this patient was diagnosed with acute onset um, chest pain that was unresolved with um, whatever drug they gave them and was determined to likely be reflux. Okay? That's a review of the patient's chart. You can't say chart reviewed. It actually has to indicate what was pertinent in that review. One of the frequent questions I get is, can I review my own chart? So can I say that I reviewed my own chart from last visit? That's not enough. You can review your own charts, but it has to be in context with that day's visit. Review of chart indicates that this patient's been poorly controlled for the last two years. Review of chart indicates a patient has complained of migraine, breakthrough migraines on a cyclical basis for the last three years. So a summary of what that is about. The other caveat in this section is additional history from. I've read practitioner notes when I would go to physician visits with my mom, I was that lovely uh, caring daughter in the guest chair and my mom, you would be asking my mom if she was compliant with her meds and I would be over behind my mom out of her sight and I would be shaking my head no that she wasn't compliant while my mother was contending that she was. That kind of information complicates the medical record. It's clear, if you don't document that daughter disagrees or daughter provided additional history with regards to mom's med compliance, then we can't give you credit for doing it. Okay. So indicating that you're getting additional history from is important. Note that when you have to interpret results and do your own interpretation, higher complexity as is at higher complexity when you are interpreting someone else's information, so doing a chart review, or gleaning often contradictory but not necessarily contradictory additional information from the physician, from the family member, excuse me, or caregiver. So what does this all mean? You count up the points in this category, okay, and this is where I said it's kind of new math. If you have two points in the data review section, you've done level three data review. If you have three points, so for example, the patient has um, had lab results and their daughter came in with them and is denying mother's compliance with meds, I have one point for a lab review and I have two points from getting additional information from the daughter, that would equate to a level four from a data perspective. Again, how well you document where you're getting that information. We can't infer that you're reading somebody else's medical chart. You ha- actually have to say it. If you're interpreting or doing your own read of an imaging service, then you need to document that. If you do that, then you can get credit for it and that adds to the complexity of your medical decision making. So it's new math. Four, three points equals a level four from a data perspective. Okay, so the point system. Getting back to a coding section, the two sections I've just talked to to you about are the assessment and the data, and this is where this equates. So, if we have straightforward medical decision-making, you have one point in two areas. If you have low complexity medical decision-making, you have two points in two areas, and that equates to a level three, versus straightforward, which is going to equate to a level one or level two, depending on whether or not this patient is new or established. And then we have level four, which is three points in two areas. You get the pattern. So, decision tree, pretty self explanatory. I'm not going to go through it. Kind of walks you through whether or not we're going to be at a level four or a level five with regards to the number of diagnosis and management options, the assessment piece of this. So, what needs to be documented? Each assessment has to have at You have to have an assessment for every encounter, at least one. And and that seems pretty straightforward, but frequently when I look at notes in the hospital from a rounding perspective or I look at notes where the patient is uh, stable, sometimes that information is missing. So just diligently should be documenting what the thought process was related to that patient today. You need to document the status of the existing problems okay it's stable it's unstable it's poorly controlled it's not resolved it's not clearly fully resolved things like that all right the next issue on this one and i've highlighted it and tried to put bells and whistles related to this there's a difference between a rule out diagnosis and a rule out from a documentation perspective. I'm going to tell you from a documentation perspective, you support acuity by saying, I'm not sure what's going on, but it might be, it could be, I'm ruling out. We're never going to use that as a diagnosis and this is where it's problematic in the EHR. You can't assign diabetes when you're ruling it out. What you can say is this patient has weight gain, uh, excessive thirst and... I'm testing them, you know, I, that's why I'm ordering the A1C because I'm ruling out diabetes. Their signs or symptoms is going to be weight gain and excessive thirst. Until they come back with a definitive diagnosis of diabetes, you can't give them that, but you're talking about the acuity of what you're thinking with this patient by saying that. So that's key in here. You can't assign it from an EHR perspective. This is where you're going to have to free text. Treatment should be documented, including instructions, nursing therapies, meds. If you're going to consult someone, that should be indicated. That's all part of good medicine. That's good patient care. From a risk perspective, okay, this is where I'm getting into that other area. This is the plan perspective. This is this, this is the one area I think more than any other that's gray. We have in order to support the risk for this patient, you should document the comorbidities, the underlying diseases, all of the things that are affecting or increasing the complexity of the care that you're providing. Document if performed uh, or planned surgical procedures or you're doing invasive tests. Document if procedures or tests need to be done on an urgent basis. Why? Why If it's, is it urgent? Not the fact that you're doing a stat blood culture, but why? Okay, that supports the thought process. Here's the problem, probably can't be seen really well. Um, This is the table of risk. If you ever look at the 95 or 97 documentation guidelines for evaluation and management services, this is the only part of medical decision making that has actually been published in these guidelines. The other two factors that I just showed you are are standard formats that have become an industry standard. It's actually based off the Marshfield Clinic tool um, that is an audit tool that most of us still use. So, the assessment and the data or the number of diagnosis management options and the data is part of of an industry standard audit tool. The only piece of medical decision-making that actually has been documented by the federal government and the AMA is the table of risk. Table of risk was a well-intentioned document, okay? We have the nature of the presenting problem and if you take a look at this, it's pretty clear that that's the acuity range, right? What we have in the other two columns is antiquated information. If you think about when this document was created, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, think about the diagnostic services that were provided and the management options we had for the patients, and what the acuity or risk was at that point because they weren't done with the frequency that they are done now, and maybe some of the safety factors weren't that done or weren't available then that, they, that are now. So I really consider these two columns to be informational and explanatory, but not something that really drives. The overall risk for the patient. So here's an example. If you take a look here, I've got one stable chronic illness, okay, or an acute uncomplicated illness is considered to be low, okay. We also have, if we take a look at the management options, Rx. Any prescription drug, if we look at the management options, is considered to be moderate. Put your clinical hats on, not your reimbursement hats on here for a moment. Patient presents five-year-old otherwise healthy, no fever, they have a cold. Otherwise healthy, they may have a minor fever, there's nothing you're worrying about from a systemic involvement perspective, but because mom is so concerned. Because the baby's been coughing and keeping her up for nights, you're going to prescribe a medication as a decongestant. It may not be over-the-counter, it may be something that actually is prescription. Have you documented by saying that this patient has a URI that they really are moderate being considered level four versus a level three? Does that really feel? appropriate. Otitis media is the perfect example. It used to be that we prescribed um, amoxicillin for every patient who came in with with um, otitis media. It's no longer ne- necessary that, or it, it's actually the, it's not something that is recommended any longer. But sometimes you do it because the patient's family is insistent, or it may you feel be clinically indicated because the patient also has asthma and you want to make sure that you, cap, you, you you knock down the otitis media in any way that you can to preclude them from getting um, an acute onset of, of asthma. So you may do that, but if at the end of the day all you document is the fact that this patient has otitis media and you don't bring in the, the um, fact that they also have a chronic condition that may, pose a systemic involvement, then you're not supporting that level 4. So how well you document the comorbidities that are affecting treatment is going to make the determining factor whether or not this patient supports level 3 or low complexity um, risk versus level 4 or moderate complexity risk. This is usually where I start to get the deer in the headlights look as I'm doing this presentation. I want you to stop and think about this. I'm not saying that, what I'm trying to say is every patient who's put on a prescription is not automatically level four, because the nature of the number and amount of prescriptions that we're doing just doesn't support it. What I'm saying is you can consistently, I'm trying to take the gray part, of the whole medical decision-making process and making it much more objective. If we use presenting problem instead of also diagnostic tests and management options, If we use presenting problem as a deciding factor in risk, we've taken some subjectivity out of this record. Physician needs to document the thought process. This patient has a URI and oh, by the way, they're a type 1 diabetic. That complicates the treatment of this patient, not whether or not you're putting them on a med, it's the fact that because they've got type 1 diabetes, they're more likely to have. Uh, reaction to any meds that are given or the fact that they're ill is going to affect their blood sugar. So, I had to take the time to explain that to the patient or the patient's caregiver so that they have an understanding of things to watch for. That's more complicated than the five-year-old who's otherwise healthy who comes in with a cold. Okay? If you're concerned that because the patient has fever and chills and they've recently been traveling to Africa, that patient's going to be much more complicated, especially in today's environment, than the patient who just presented with fever and chills in the past. So what are you worried about? What are you testing? What are you considering? All of that in documentation is going to help support a higher acuity. That's the conversation. That's what we're trying to, to document here. So, here's the if we just use the nature of the presenting problem, okay, so we're going to use the presenting problem in the table of risk and ignore the other two columns, we now have made this much more objective rather than subjective. So, how many problems are we addressing? I've got two or more self-limited or minor problems, I've got one stable chronic illness, or I've got an acute, uncomplicated illness. Typically, viral infections, acute uncomplicated illnesses, from my non-clinical perspective are the ones that I think that if the patient had minimally invasive uh, treatment, then they're going, to, um, they're going to heal or resolve with no impairment. The ones that might be considered acute problems with systemic symptoms or acute uh, injuries, with prolonged involvement would be those that are going to, without treatment, they would have adverse effect, so for example, a patient with a fracture um, might be more complicated than the patient who comes in with a simple sprain, and again, some sprains aren't simple, and so, how well you document that is is also going to affect whether or not that would be considered a level three presenting problem or a level four presenting problem. How well you document the thought process here is key. Um, we're coming to the c- conclusion of this, I want to bring it all together if I can, um, about medical decision making. So what you need to consider when we're talking about medical decision making is two of the three components, so we have the components are the number of diagnos- diagnosis and management options, we've got data that has to be considered, right? And we have risk, and I've already mentioned my thought process in helping make this more objective rather than subjective is to use presenting problem to help support the risk and overall medical decision-making. So, based on what's documented, if the physician sees a patient with three chronic illnesses and all three are addressed that day, that patient starts with a diagnosis or management option of a level three, excuse me, a level four. Then physician documents lab review, so I'm going to be at a level one from a data perspective. But if I go back, and I'm going to go back to this presenting problem, a patient being seen with two or more stable chronic illnesses equates to level four, right, from a risk perspective. So if I think of it that way. Then, where am I with this patient who comes in with the diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia that are addressed today? I've got two areas that meet or exceed a level 4, and so my overall medical decision-making, regardless of the fact that data didn't meet it, my overall medical decision-making is going to be a level 4. Here's where it would be different. Patient presents today for a new onset problem, comes in for a sprained ankle. They heard something pop, they're concerned that it could have been a fracture. On palpation, you don't think it is, you think it's a simple sprain, there's no additional workup, you really aren't considering anything. From the number of diagnosis and management options, this patient is still going to be a level 4 from that perspective. They're not going to be moderate here because at the end of the day, it's a simple sprain. We didn't do any data review on this patient we didn't have to order an x-ray but at the end of the day it's an acute uncomplicated illness or injury right i'm no longer going to be a level 4 for medical decision making perspective what i'm going to be on this patient is a level 3 because two of my 3 have met or exceeded a level 3 i have not met or exceeded a level 4 in order to get a level 4 i have to have i have to have met or exceeded a level 4 having said that That's how we put all of these together, the slides, I think I just gave you an example of this. This is how it works out, low, if they don't meet up, would be how we score medical decision making. I want to thank you for your time, I know we didn't get through everything. What I want before I let you go, one last piece of this is don't forget, I've talked today just about medical decision making. Let's not forget that even if you have level 4 medical decision-making, you still need to support that level 4 in the documentation of either your history or exam in order to support that service. So it's not enough just to document a really stellar assessment and plan. You have to backfill that and document all of the questions that you ask the patient in the history of present illness and review of systems and past family social history to support that medical decision-making. So again, thank you for your time and attention. Dr. Brooks, I'm going to pass it over to you.
0: All right, well thank you so much Lori, if you want to put that slide up with your contact information. I'll be happy to. And that way if you have any questions for Lori, you can contact her directly or perhaps you need assistance from Coding Strategies. And our team at First Healthcare Compliance is available to you 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, Call us or email us if you have any questions or would like to schedule a quick demo of our software. Thank you and please register to join us for our next free monthly webinar. It's January 22nd at noon Eastern Standard Time. It'll be Mike Nolan from Nolan Associates and he'll be presenting, uh, are you worried a HIPAA or cyber exposure could ruin your practice? Your medical liability carrier can help you.